Whether it's a river runs through it or the oxbow incident, the last best place or legends of the fall, why is it that so many of the books that have defined the American West come from the same place? This is Breakfast in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland. And I'm Aaron Parrott. And we're going to spend the next half hour talking about two books from Montana, one from the past and one from the present, in an effort to understand what it is about this magical state that inspires so much incredible writing and so many memorable books. So pour yourself a good strong cup of coffee and spread some huckleberry jam on your toast. And welcome to Breakfast in Montana. Okay, welcome to Breakfast in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland. And I'm Aaron Parrott. And today we're going to talk about two very different books that also have a pretty strong connection that's kind of interesting. Uh, the first is a novel by a man named Darcy McNichol. The, the book is called The Surrounded, and it was published back in 1936, I think. Is that right? That sounds right. And the other is uh, Blood Ties and Brown Liquor by a poet uh, called Sean Hill. A recent uh, arrival in Montana. Yeah, and what an amazing uh, pedigree Mr. Hill has. Yeah. Um, Full disclosure, I actually went to graduate school with him in Georgia. Right. Which is pretty cool. That was how long ago? Um, I'm not sure when he finished up, but I, I was done there in 2000. 2001 oh, okay maybe. so about 20 years ago yeah yeah and he's a stegner fellow which is always a huge feather and um we'll that's right and he also got an mfa at university of houston right right one, one of, of the top of, writing programs in the country and he won a, a jc and ruth hall's poetry fellowship at wisconsin institute for creative writing wow and he runs a writing workshop in Bemidji, Minnesota. Oh, does he? You went to two of the most highly regarded writing programs in the country, Houston and Stanford. Yes. And I just wondered if you would talk a little bit about your experience there, compare and contrast a little, maybe. Hmm. Um... <laughs> I hadn't thought about comparing those places. Like, <laughs> I've, I've actually been to like uh, affiliated with all, all kinds of institutions, uh -huh. um, and I feel blessed to have been so. Um, you know, Houston was was a fantastic experience. I was mm. there for three years. As a, I was in the MFA program, and I met a lot of great people and made a lot of great friends that I still have today, sort of in the poetry world. Um, and you know it was as, as much as anything like the you know, the people you meet in fact the faculty and your your sort of peers you know it's it's the place mm. um and I, I feel like you know both Houston and Stanford are very supportive of the the writers who are there to learn um but also they, they just have interesting things to offer in terms of what what you learn about a place and what a place can teach you about yourself. Mm. Um, 
so yeah, I, I learned a lot about poetry at Houston, a lot about poetry um, at Stanford. But um, you know, Houston was this you know sort of confluence of all kinds of of cultures, and Stanford less so <laughs> in in some ways. You That's know, interesting. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I, Again, like incredible, very supportive, but I, I, I felt like I was, I was in a rarefied space um, whenever I was on that campus and the University of Houston campus and just Houston in general. I felt like I was in, like you know, in, in a place where where the South, the Southwest, Mexico, and the North kind of came together in a really weird way. Mm. Um, you know, fourth largest city in the nation when I was mm, there, yeah. um, and just everyone's there. It's it's a port town, mm. um, you know. So there's the, the port of Houston. So it's like it was. There are signs in downtown Houston that are in Vietnamese, like street signs. Wow. Um, you go to another part of Houston, the signs are also in Chinese. Um, there, there was the Indian part of town. Um, I just felt like I was in this really wonderful cosmopolitan place. And it's a big, sprawly mess. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, like, I, I get the sense that people don't like when I say Houston. Like, oh my gosh, Houston. Like, if you don't haven't lived there. Um, and it wasn't immediately, you know, <laughs> inviting to me. But, but, like, after a few months of living there, I was like, oh my god, this place has so much to offer. Wow. Um, hmm. In terms of culture. Hmm. Um, there's you know there's a museum district in 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 Houston so just there's the muse- Houston Museum of Fine Arts which is right across the street from the, the Contemporary Art Museum there's the Manil Collection which has the Rothko Chapel and the Cy Twombly Gallery and it's just, it's just so much art you could just I I it was awesome like, wow. I just like hmm. it's so I had no idea there's a theaters mm-hmm. downtown. August Wilson plays. Mm. I like you know, the the reading series that was there and the people they brought. Um, yeah, it was it was incredible. Um, so much to do, so much food to eat. Mm. So yeah, this this book of poems is really rich. I, I love the um, the fact that he uses a sort of a a fictional but based in reality history of the family t- to structure this this whole book. Right. So he's from uh, Milledgeville, Georgia, and mm-hmm. his family I think has a long history there. Um. And the other thing that really struck me about this is how structured it is, not just in terms of the narrative. So it's it's a collection of poems that's really kind of a historical narrative in an yeah. interesting way. But also the form of these poems, like uh, the Albada. Mm. I forget how he said that, Albad, um, which is a contrast to a serenade. So a serenade is an evening poem, and a lot of these are morning poems, which is ah, interesting. I didn't even notice that. And but you know, you did notice the 
a lot of the structure. Yeah, absolutely. Like the repeating rhyme and the meter and stuff. It's pretty, you know, it's complex. Yeah, he plays meter. he plays around with with form quite a bit, and um, it doesn't feel like it's forced. It feels like it it's uh, organic. Like it, the poems all fit. Yeah, that's really true. And so there's, you know, a lot of these classical forms, but then also a lot of of blues. Blues. Um, you know, deep, deep South blues. Oh, yeah, song. yeah. One of the poems that I wanted to ask you about that I found really powerful and interesting was um, when you told the story of the two couples that were lynched. Mm hmm but you told it from the point of view of an insurance guy coming to talk to. Right. That was a fascinating way to approach that whole um, incident. I was wondering how you came to that. That, that those poems were kind of interesting because I, I think they were. I wrote those poems in Houston, and I I was like, I want to write villanelles. I had this idea for writing a villanelle. Mm. Also, I'd had a dream, in which, I. I recently been reading about and sort of in my historical research reading about that lynching that event that happened and I had a dream that came out of internalizing that research that history in which the lines the repeated lines of the poem were said to me by some mm. voice you know some menacing voice in the dream nightmare um, and the insurance man part of it came out of just, you know, growing up and the insurance man coming to knock on the door, the insurance man would come to visit, right? Um, and insurance companies were one of the early companies, first businesses that, that African-Americans started. Mm. Um, so there were African-American insurance companies. Mm. Um, and so that was part of it too, like this knowing that history. Mm -hmm. um, and just thinking about so it was the history it was the dream it was the idea that this was going to be a villanelle and the thing that the repeated form the, the this repetitious form might um lend itself to is someone selling mm. someone you know sales pitch mm -hmm. um and so it was all that kind of came together um and I think it, it probably thinking about it as a a form that might be good for a sales pitch might have led me to thinking about the insurance. Oh, yeah. That's cool. Yeah. And there's more than one Villanelle in here, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You experiment with form quite a bit in this book, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was part of my learning and thinking about craft was, uh -huh. was yeah, um, like I like the poem where you, that's called "Learning to Walk." That's yeah. two syllables for each yeah. line. So yeah. It's like walking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Again, like so that that I was at Houston and there was a visiting writer, um, who came and read at this at this reading series we had the Gulf Coast reading series. Her name was Robin Schiff. I think she teaches at Emory now, and mm. she'd had this, her book out, um, in which she had those short lines like that too mm. and she was had this idea about subverting the line like breaking lines like that to subvert the idea of the line mm. 
And I like that idea, but for me, it was also like, I can make this move and make it differently. Mm -hmm. um, because that, um, that short line with the two syllables, um, for me, it was like thinking about those footsteps. Right. And it brought to mind the story that I'd heard from my grandmother, right? Mm -hmm. and so the, that became the poem. It was like, it, it, the poem... <laughs> um, before that was actually, I think, in quatrains, mm. and it had like eeny meeny miny mo, like off to the side. And it's oh. like weird, mm. kind of like, um, like interpolated. Like let's let's t unpack this odd rhyme from, mm -hmm. from childhood, um, yeah. and. Once I got the, the, the two-syllable line, um, that just kind of dropped away. I think it was unnecessary, and I think mm -hmm. it, it became more powerful to think about, like, you know, the, the footsteps. Right, yeah. And learning to, to, to walk mm -hmm. in a constrained fashion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if that makes sense. And then there's that one poem that we both commented on when we interviewed him the poem on page 31 lessening that's uh because the lines are so long right <laughs> it had to be it had to be run um vertically on the page which is i think always a really cool effect yeah yeah so there's a lot of interesting experimentation but it doesn't like i said it doesn't feel forced it feels like these poems are all they all stand on their own just amazingly well he's just so talented right i yeah i think that's that's also true and you know how many poetry books do you encounter about three quarters of the way through a family tree right <laughs> that's right yeah you know which ties all because he's sort of all over the map here but it does all have this focal point of the experience of multi-generations mm -hmm. african-americans in milledgeville yeah so talk about the um your theory about his sense of place. When we when we interviewed him in Helena a few weeks ago, one of the questions we asked him was, you know, what what do you make of uh you know, you're a Montana writer now cuz you live here and how you think of place because these poems are all definitely oriented in in georgia right but other stuff he's done is alaska so before montana he lived in alaska for several years yep and i did not expect the answer you know to what is your sense of place um the way he answered it which was you know home is wherever i am mm -hmm. kind of yeah um i really like that like he's you know, he said, I've been all over the country, I've lived lots of different places, and while he acknowledged that, you know, Georgia probably are his roots, he really felt like Montana is home now. Yeah. Like, he loves this place, and and he said he felt the same way when he was in Alaska and Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Houston. And I think to a lesser extent when he was in Texas. And he actually Houston. loved Houston, too, though. Yeah. That was, yeah, that was he, pretty interesting. And it, it's especially interesting when you when you look at the how I mean these this book um, 
conveys such a strong connection to that place, but it, it doesn't mean that that defines who he is. So that's that's no. I think that was the real surprising part of his answer was right. that you know so many Montana writers, and it just almost feels like it's kind of a cliche that their writing is defined by place and yeah. it's all place narrative. And then he sort of reversed that and was like, you know, the place is influenced by the people that are there. Yeah, exactly. And you did your undergrad at Georgia. Yep. In English or? In English. Um, and then also, uh, I, I, I did a, a master's in English and creative writing. In Georgia? In, at Georgia. Oh, yeah. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. Wow. So you've been to a lot of grad school. Yeah, yeah, a little bit, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a little bit. A little bit. Um, and you grew yeah. up in Georgia, right? Grew up, born and raised in Milledgeville, Georgia. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, now that you've been away from Georgia for a bit, do you have any different view of it? I, I think my, my, my view of Milledgeville, like, I'm always sort of looking back with my view of Milledgeville changed when I went to Athens. Like I had, it gave me perspective, like to look on where I'd come from, but also where I came from shaped the way I was and viewed where I ended up. Right. Mm -hmm. So moving 70 miles north of Milledgeville to Athens, Georgia to go to school, like just changed things totally. Like for instance, you know, Milledgeville uh, is sort of famous for a lot of things. Um, and you know, things I hadn't realized at the time, like the you know, Central State Hospital, the you know, it was it was founded in the mid nineteenth century, like eighteen forty two. The um hospital for at the time the language was like, you know, the asylum for lunatics. Oh, like, uh-huh. um, sure. and you know Growing up in Milledgeville, that was one of those things people would sometimes say to you, like, you know, stop acting like that, we're going to send you out to the, the, the state, the hospital, wow. right? And then, you know, I went to Athens, and everyone's like, you're from Milledgeville? That's where all the crazy people are, because, when, you know, people not from Milledgeville, and, but in Georgia grew, growing up, they were always told, like, you know, you're going to go where they're going to send you to the crazy people's in Milledgeville. Yeah. Um, and so th- that was, I didn't realize that was a thing, like... Until being there, like how how people view you, mm-hmm. um, you know, you just you don't have that perspective unless you move, right? Right. Um, and then, sort of thinking about the South when I go to Houston, which is kind of southern but not southern, and all these other things, right? And then move into Minnesota, shifted the way I thought about where I'd come from. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then. At this point, I've been to many parts of the country and I've visited all fifty states. Um, and yeah, it's just like I I feel like I'm continually gaining some perspective. Sure. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. But if, so if that answers your question. Yeah. But, Does any one of those places feel more like home than others? Or yeah, you know, um, I I feel like I I I'm allowing myself to have. All kinds of homes. Yeah, they 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 are they are homes of mine, um, and they offer different things. You know, I I I, I love northern Minnesota. Mm. Um, I actually love Montana. Mm. Um, I, I I really like living here. Um, 
the San Francisco Bay Area. I could rhapsodize about like living in Oakland and San Francisco. You know, I, I've, all of these places I had this moment where I was like, I, I live here. <laughs> <laughs> I like I get to live in this place. You know, um, I like I've said that I like I think at each each of these places I'm like I get to live here. I'm living in this incredible space. Um, so maybe you could, maybe you could connect that to what you were saying about the surrounded. Yeah. So the surrounded feels like a similar, um, there's a similar message there in that this, the main character in the surrounded, which is a phenomenal novel. Um, the main character comes back to the reservation after being in a boarding school and, um, and he doesn't really feel that connection that you might expect. Um, it's more of a, um, it's a, more of a toxic, <laughs> like he's, he's connected, but it's, it's a, he's resisting it. He, he, he loves the He people. resents the ties that he has to. Exactly. To both his mother and his father, and we should point out that, you know, he's Metis, so his yeah. dad is actually Spanish from Spain. Right. And his mother is uh, Salish. Yeah. And they they don't even live in the same house. So right. <laughs> he has this really schizoid kind of family life, and he makes it pretty clear throughout the book that, and maybe this is part of the title that he he wants to get out and yeah. go back to Portland and be a fiddler and right and study music and so forth. So it's a really uh, ambivalent sort of message in the book. Mm-hmm. And you, you have to wonder how much of it parallels McNichol's life because his father was Irish and his mother was um, Matee, right? Right. Yeah. And so. And he was very worldly. Like he went to Oxford, and um, ended up. Working yeah, he was a the, Rhodes Scholar, right? From ended U of up, M. Yeah, and he ended up working in Washington for a long time for the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So, and he was a professor in Canada for years. And yeah, um, he really had a pretty amazing life. Also, wrote a phenomenal young adult novel called Runner in the Sun. You got to wonder how much uh, his professional life interfered with him becoming um, more of a prolific writer because, I, you know, The Surrounded is pretty much considered one of the m most accomplished native novels ever, right? I think it is, and I just think it's one of the greatest Montana novels ever written. I do too. Um, it's. And I love that he wrote it, you know, when he was in, or started writing it at least, when he was in London mm -hmm. as a Rhodes Scholar. And at least the material I read sort of indicated that, you know, he had this amazing scholarship to go to Oxford and he basically skipped school all the time and went over to France, uh, along with a lot of other American writer expatriates in the 20s, um, and was working on this novel. Yeah. 
And he didn't write, I think the only other adult novel that he wrote was uh, Wind from an Enemy Sky, which is also a really good novel, but um, not quite as dense and mm. and economical as this one. The thing that really struck me, too, about this book was, um, you know, it really parallels a lot of the stories of a lot of Native people that I've I've known and talked to about the connection to the reservation. Um how that desire to leave can be completely squashed by their surroundings and by the 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 people around them. Um how hard it is to you know, make, I think to make that move. It's interesting that you use the word surroundings because I don't you know, I think the title of this book alone is so revealing, the mm-hmm. surrounded. Yep. Um and, and it works on so many different levels in the book it really does but if you could somehow connect that to um you know sean hill's sense of place and identity how do you think that corresponds to darcy mcnichols because you're right he didn't spend a lot of time on the yeah on the flathead reservation well i i guess probably the main connection or the main comparison would be that um in sean's case he didn't feel trapped or 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 um any kind of an obligation to stay in georgia yeah that's interesting yeah so it's a different kind of uh i thought it was interesting too that he every time he talked about that when he goes back there now he still loves it even though it's changed quite a bit Right. So there's no, like, none of the kind of, uh, oh, geez, I'm so glad I left, <laughs> you know. Right. That you sense in the, in the surrounded. Um, so, yeah, they all feel like home. Hmm. Um, That's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, but I, could I, you I, ever I, see yourself living in Milledgeville again? Oh, um, I, I go to Milledgeville at least once a year to visit family and it is a place that sort of holds my imagination and I, I return to um, you know, with my writing but I don't, I don't I don't know I've thought about it I only um, ask because when you were talking about leaving Milledgeville to go to Athens you know same thing happened to me I grew up in Helena and then right. I went to Missoula and life was never the same after that. And I was yeah. like, I will never live in Helena again, that, you know, podunk, yeah. jerk water burg. <laughs> yeah. But here I am living in it. But it, it's changed so much. Right. Whereas right. Milledgeville strikes me as probably not having changed a lot. It actually has. Oh, it has? I mean, this, that's why it's like, I, you know, I, I could see living there. Because, like, in the, the early aughts, I would go back to visit. And at that point... Georgia College sort of rebranded itself and was now Georgia College and State University and was the liberal arts university for the the University of Georgia system. Mm. Right. And so now it's like, it's a small liberal arts school in my hometown. Oh, wow. Interesting. That's that's probably changed the whole dynamic of the town. Right. Or at least the downtown. So now, Mm -hmm. you know, there's, you know, there's been a coffee shop there for a good 15, 20 years now that I go to the, Blackbird Cafe, little shout out. Um, 
that I go to every time I'm home and just sort of like that's my sort of safe space because again traveling changes you mm-hmm. and you know having gone to Athens and lived in Athens for a number of years and then gone to Houston and then I come back to Milledgeville and it's like okay here's a little coffee shop unlike anything that was around when I grew up mm-hmm. but also like what I've grown accustomed to mm-hmm. yeah. I can go and sit and do some work and mm-hmm. just be around and it's playing music that you know I, I, I wouldn't expect to hear <laughs> anywhere else in Milledgeville and just like the, the chatter of you know, and it's just of, of college students. <laughs> it's like, okay, yeah, this, this is familiar to me. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, and so, okay. Yeah, you know, there's, there's, there's like a Jamaican place now. There's mm. a Mediterranean place. There's this, this Bollywood tacos. It's like a mm. Indian Mexican fusion thing. It's just, wow. like so. There's just like stuff is happening in Milledgeville um, that makes it like, yeah, I, I I can definitely spend time here, and I can maybe see moving back here. Mm. Yeah. I think part of what uh, McNichol is capturing in the character of our shield, the main character, is that what you were talking about earlier, the whole Indian identity versus Indian identity vis-a-vis the reservation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the rest of his family are not ambivalent about it. Like his brother Louis is, you know, he he pretty much is trying to live like the Indians lived in the 1880s mm-hmm. still stealing horses and you know getting in trouble with the law in a new in a new world mm. and the mother you know the mother has converted from what mcnichol in the book calls paganism to catholicism and then she turns her back on that and goes back to the old ways mm. yeah i actually wanted to read a short section here that applies to his, great his father. Um, and I just thought it was a beautiful expression of uh, McNichol's own, probably his own view of... Sure. It's, so it starts with, um, Why he had gone to live with the Indians, Max could not explain, except to say that he wanted a free life and they had it. He knew that was, that wasn't enough of an explanation. A free life might mean much to an old world man, but hardly enough to, by itself to win him from his loyalty to the past and what, had, what it had made of him. Some men went to the Indians because they were lazy, physically and morally, and saw in these simple people a chance to satisfy all their appetites with a minimum of effort. But Max hardly belonged in that class. He tired quickly of their footloose and improvident existence. And as soon as he married Catherine, the daughter of the only Indian he ever really admired, old Running Wolf, he settled down and began to build up his ranch. And on that, he labored strenuously. He cut logs for his houses and barns, put up wild hay for winter feeding, and with rails of his own splitting, snake-fenced a large home lot. In the work of those early years, he rarely had anyone to help. It was not laziness, and it was not romanticism. He never thought the Indians were noble or children of a lost paradise. While it was true that the old life was much cleaner than the present existence, it was still hard for a white man to stomach. They were like any other people in this respect. 
that individuals varied exceedingly. Some you admired and some you detested on sight. People were always asking him what he thought of the Indians. What were their chief characteristics? And it was nonsense. He didn't know. You could say that jackrabbits had long legs and were swift runners, hoppers rather, but there was no single trait he knew of to describe all Indians. Even the first thing you thought of, color, had almost as many variations as there were single Indians. Yeah, that's an awesome passage. Isn't it? And I love how he, you know, repudiates the whole sort of noble myth, savage. Yeah. Noble yeah, that's savage myth. To me, that's the brilliance of the whole book. It's it explores all of these these stereotypes and just blasts them apart. Really, you know, it's really true. And I, having recently taught this in a class, um, you know, the students were sort of struck by the the white people in the book too are not one dimensional like mm-hmm. the. You know, the Indian agent is, he's actually f- feels like a pretty good guy. Right. right. Yeah. And the the sheriff is, you know, a little more complicated, but the, the real villain, if there is one, has to be the, the game warden. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, there's the whole religious element and the priests and all that makes right. it complicated. So it's complex. I mean, it's it's like... And how dare he write about white people? <laughs> He'd be accused of appropriation now. <laughs> but yeah, it's 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 uh, just a classic example of how a good writer can write about anybody. You know, write characters that are from whatever background and make them. I agree, and you know, since we brought up some of his other work i would point out that you know runner in the sun is not about montana indians it's about anasazi oh really yeah it's a really interesting speculation about you know what happened with those people and who were they and so forth Hmm. but if we could get back to the whole idea of of you know how place works and all this Mm -hmm. i think it's it's interesting that sean he sort of, from what he said, it sounds like he he's home wherever he is, and his writing is going to reflect, you know, how he envisions the place rather than some abstract sense of the Montana landscape is going to make people write a certain way or produce yeah, certain yeah. kinds of writing, which I think is so backward. Right. Well, um, you know, the tie to your hometown makes me, uh, brings me to the, your book, Blood Ties and Brown Liquor. Um, I really love this book. And, you know, you talk about not being able to tell a story, but this really does tell a story in a way. It is an interesting collection of poetry that is like a novel. Like yeah. A, there's characters, different yeah. times, but all connected by some central idea right so how did you how did you come up with the uh premise for it is is it a is it based on real family or is it a fictional family (laughs) asking me hard questions um it is very definitely a fictional family Mm -hmm. um 
based on real history. Sure. Um, I'd, I'd, in Kevin's workshop, actually, um, I'd been writing poems about my father and one of my classmates, uh, the, the novelist Terry Jones, was in that class and she actually said, why do you keep writing these poems about your father? I'm sure there are women in your family too who deserve poems. Um, and she was right. So mm. I went to my grandmother's and was like, I want to write poems about you guys. Can I write a poem? And one of them said, no, you can't write poems about me. And the other one's like, sure, whatever. <laughs> I'll, I'll help you with your schoolwork, baby. Um, and so I interviewed her and I wrote these grandmother poems mm. sort of based on the interview. And as like two things came out of that. Um, I, I feel like my poetry writing shifted. Like I somehow became a better poet in the process of writing those poems. Um, and my grandmother, who was more than happy to help me, you know, with my schoolwork, was not necessarily prepared to have those poems published. Mm. Um, and it made me realize that I have to be aware of what I'm doing as mm -hmm. it concerns other people, right, as a writer. Mm. Um, Whoops, I don't understand what you mean. Um, like, she felt that, um, not that I necessarily intentionally violated her privacy, but okay. she was just like, when I, I, the poems were published in Callaloo, um, this journal, sort of, African, the premier journal of African-American literature um, or African diasporic literature. Um, and when I brought her the, the journal, because I was very proud that I got these poems published in a really great place, um, she was just like, oh, I didn't know that's what this was, was going to happen. What this, mm -hmm. was, that, see, yeah. what you're, what this was leading to. Hmm. Um, hmm. Did you ever talk to her about it? Like... Well, that was the conversation. She's like, I didn't know this was with you. Know, she didn't say it like that, but she's like, oh. And I sort of understood, like, oh, I, got, I think I might have, you know, crossed some line. Hmm. You know. Interesting. Um, and so that sort of pushed me into some space that I was, I'd want it to go anyway. Like, I, you know, again, growing up, like, I'm going to write stories. And so I was like, I need to invent a character. Mm. So that I can continue to write what I want to write and also to have the relationship I'm having with my grandmother, who actually is in the lot of the book. It's just that she's not there as herself anymore. Sure, right. Um, you know what was interesting, too, and, and this didn't make it into the interview, but um, we asked him after we'd turned the machine off about... Um, his experience of racism in Montana. And he, he told a story that was actually from Minnesota, but could have happened here. Um, and it had nothing to do with him. It was, uh, well, kind of did, but he was talking about uh, one of his roommates one day. He overheard him having a discussion with another guy, and he used the N-word. And Sean was like, he he went and said, what did you say? <laughs> and his roommate said, oh, no, no, I wasn't, I wasn't talking about you. I was talking about prairie niggers. And, uh, you know, 
the fact that he would focus on the racism toward others was fascinating to me. Um, right, because that's a slur against Indians, right? Yeah, that's, yeah. Yep. So, and I, so it made sense, of course, that he would, when we asked him to pick a book that he wanted to be paired with, he would pick a, a native author. Although it wasn't the one we chose, <laughs> but yeah. Full disclosure: he he suggested uh, "Fool's Crow" by James Welch. Yep. Um, but all three of us decided we we didn't have enough time to read it in time to get this interview done. Yeah. So we settled on the surroundings, Plus, we've which has been, been on to... our list for a long time. Yeah, we've been wanting to discuss this book for a while now, so it was a good good fit. Yeah. So these are, I mean, these are just both great examples of good writers um, talking about complex issues in a way that's uh, unique to them, but also very universal, I think. I agree, and the fact that they're both connected to Montana, yeah, um, and yet their work is so far outside the scope of Montana writing, but still they're Montana writers. Yep, yeah, they are. I think uh, complicates our whole understanding of what is a Montana writer right. that we started this whole podcast with. Right. So we were going to ask you to read. Did you have something you wanted to? We, I thought 33 and you were going to. Yeah. We're, we're going to ask you to read. <clears throat> oh, words like rivers. Yes. <laughs> I, I, this is a poem I never read. Um, at readings. Would you? You won't be able to say that any longer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't have to read it if you don't want to. But I'll, I'll read it. I'll read it. It's been a long time. Words like rivers. One. At bars, we banter over brown liquor, Irish, Scotch, Canadian. None of these, my people. Whiskies, brown, with undertones, reds and yellows, arranged pine bars. All I want is a swallow, but I just broke this bottle. Lord, all I need's a swallow, but I done broke my bottle. Mm. Broken bottle blues, wallowing, and then broken bottle blues. Two. Black men, bibulous, bilious, like me, belching the morning after whiskey. Stream words like rivers and families riven over centuries. My old ladies yellow and round like the moon. I say my old ladies full and yellow like the moon. And Lord, I can't afford her and that baby due in June. Mm. Three. Black men come and go like clouds, lucky numbers, and dizzy spells. My father has always stayed. He met his old man when he was becoming a man at 16. I say blood tides is like liquor and water. I say blood tides rise like liquor and water. And Lord knows I want to shoot my father.
for. I have an older brother I think about as much as my bones, long ago broken and mended. Might fill them come the pain of age and rainy days. The fields dry as a bone, I've been missing the rain. Bone dry, the sun beat and burn the corn and the cane. Lord, if not rain, then let me see my brother again. Mm. That's an awesome poem. That's beautiful. Yeah. So wh whose voice is that? Is that Silas? You know, that, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, it, it's in part my voice. Oh, yeah. And then in part the voice of the blues man, blues woman, mm. who talks of and through and to the community. Ah. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's one of the, of the other things I loved about this book. I mean, sometimes it really doesn't matter yeah. <laughs> whose voice it is, you know. Yeah. There's there's a universal feel to these poems. That's... <clears throat> yeah. So, yeah, the, the two books that we are highly recommending... The Surrounded by Darcy McNichol, published in the 1930s, and... And Blood Ties and Brown Liquor by Sean Hill. Um, this came out in 2008, and he has a more recent uh, collection of poetry called Dangerous Goods. Yeah, also got um, fabulous reviews. Right, and published by Milkweed. Oh, yeah. High-quality publisher. So for for next episode, we're hoping to uh, arrange to interview Tom McGuane and talk about one of his novels along with The Power of the Dog by Thomas Savage. So tune in next time to Breakfast in Montana. Thanks a lot for joining us. Breakfast in Montana is written and produced by Aaron Parrott and Russell Rowland. The music is written and performed by Aaron Parrott. Breakfast in Montana would like to thank the Drum Lemon Institute and Montana Arts Council for their generous support. Join us again next time.